Hello, I am Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I'm Nihal Al-Hadi in Toronto. Welcome to The Conversation Weekly. The ongoing protests in Iran that started last year in September, to me, really feel like a thoroughly modern protest against an authoritarian regime. And something, unfortunately, that kind of feels almost normalized in many places around the world. Yeah, I mean, the Arab Spring was over a decade ago, and this seems like a continuation, right, in the Middle East and North Africa of protests against authoritarian regimes. And to me, Nahal, a lot of the kind of modern feeling of these protests is tied a lot to the internet and social media. Were you paying much attention to the Egyptian uprisings during Arab Spring? I wasn't covering it as a journalist, but at the time I was doing my PhD and I was looking at the intersections between online and physical public spaces because you were seeing what was happening on the streets, but also the ways in which both states and activists were using the internet, Mm -hmm, or in some mm -hmm. cases, the states not allowing the activists to use the internet. And that was of particular interest to me at the time. That's a really good point. And That internet and the social online nature of these protests has really continued till today. And this is very much tied to what we're looking at in today's episode. So in this episode, we are digging into this idea that has been present in all of these revolutions and protests in recent years. And that is the role of gender ideology, both on the side of the protesters, but also as a means of control by the regimes that they are protesting against. So to start us off, I spoke with two scholars who co-wrote a paper about the similarities between two cultures that on the surface are very different, Egypt and Belarus. I'm Alex Kajarski, and I currently work for Charles University in Prague, the Czech Republic. I'm a lecturer and a researcher, and I specialize in international politics, international security. My name is Michaela Gamjeva. I come from Slovakia, and currently I work as an independent researcher and language teacher with specialization of Arabic and English teaching. And last year I was awarded my PhD degree from the Institute of European Studies and International Relations of Comenius University in Bratislava, Slovakia. I'm mainly interested in the Middle East in general, but particularly Egypt particularly in the Egyptian feminism and Arab political parity among women and Islamophobia and Islam and new trends within Islam. Alex and Michaela met when Michaela was working on her PhD at Komenius University in Slovakia, where Alex had completed his degree and was teaching at the time. In August of 2020, while watching the protests now known as the Belarus Awakening, Michaela reached out to Alex, who is originally from Belarus, and they started talking about the striking similarities she was noticing between the Belarusian protests and the Arab Spring protests. So, a little background here. The Arab Spring was a series of protests that shook parts of the Middle East and North Africa starting in 2010 and lasted until 2011. Michaela's work focused specifically on Egypt during that time. The protests erupted for a variety of reasons, but there was a really bad economic situation within Egypt. There was this really brutal autocratic regime of the former president Hosni Mubarak, Mm. who was torturing people. One of the most visual symbols that many people heard about was the case of Khaled Said, a young Egyptian man who was brutally tortured and killed by the police. 
and a picture of his disfigured body made it to the internet and it was widely distributed and it led even to the launching of a very popular at the time Facebook page, which in a few days gained a high prominence and many followers. And this was one of the most visible triggers that mm. triggered the Arab Spring and it made people more aware maybe about the injustices. Like, not that they weren't aware before, but now they realized with the case of this boy, Khalid Said, that, okay, this could be actually me because mm. this brutal regime, like, nobody is safe. In the end, the protests in Egypt led to the overthrow of Mubarak and eventually the installation of a military regime. Nearly a decade later, and 3,000 kilometers away, in August of 2020, what is now called the Belarus Awakening took place. Belarus is a former Soviet satellite state, and in 1994, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the country held its first ever democratic election. Alexander Lukashenko was the winner of that election and has remained in power ever since. Though the country has held five presidential elections since, they are neither free nor fair. And while Belarusians had protested the outcomes of other elections before 2020, Alex explains that the circumstances around that election introduced some new elements to the picture. 2020 was really unprecedented in the sense of the scale, because there had never been so many people out in the streets before, mm. like hundreds of thousands. And that is in a country of less than 10 million. Mm. So what happened was in August 2020, the regime scheduled the presidential election, and everybody expected that Lukashenko would, uh, just as usual, declare himself the winner. And then he would just ignore the international observers and the, uh, the whole international community. But this time, it was a bit different because the people, they were really angry. They were disappointed by how the living standards in the country were falling in the, the more recent years. But also, they're angered by how the government mishandled the pandemic because it was denying the seriousness of COVID-19. So people felt like they were abandoned. They're left to die from this virus. Sensing trouble before the election, Lukashenko preemptively arrested his political opponents. But he did allow Svetlana Chikanuskaya, the wife of one of his arrested opponents, to run. Apparently, they allowed her to run because they thought, uh, okay, she is a woman, so she cannot do much. And, you know, we were just going to make a laughing stock out of her. But that was the kind of strategic mistake because... She became very popular together with two other allies, two women. Uh, so they became these icons of the protest movement later on. Mm -hmm. So first there was the election. Then there was the initial wave of protests, which wasn't all that large. But the police, uh, they detained hundreds of people. And then these people were beaten. They were tortured for several days. Mm. And when they were released, this is when the society was truly shocked. And uh, this effect is similar to what Mishka was just talking about with the... Uh, the visual injustice symbols and the, the triggering role they play. So these images of the people who are just, you know, literally all blue from being beaten for hours and hours, they triggered the really, you know, massive wave of protests. It was at this point that Michaela and Alex started noticing striking similarities between the images from Belarus and those from the Arab Spring, particularly when they began comparing the way governments were using representations of gender. There were these parallels and they were building on these hegemonic masculinities, for example, by that, that the regimes in both countries were relying on these traditional gender images. So the mm. images, how the ideal woman should behave and should look mm. like, how an ideal man, this 
hegemonic masculinity should look like, should behave. They were very much building on these ideas and notions that are usually associated with womanhood or manhood, for example. Mm -hmm. In Egypt, women took part in the protests in the Arab Spring, but they should be predominantly wives, mothers, they should take care of children, of their mm -hmm. husband, like they should return now to the kitchen, like it's a man's job to have power now and to rule over the state. Uh, in Belarus, Lukashenko likes to present himself as this majestic style of figure who mm -hmm. likes to play sports. This is really important. There's this macho-like, larger-than-life figure. And like every man should go to the army to be the real man. And women are to him and to people who are associated with him uh, treated as predominantly maybe wives, that they should take care mm -hmm. of the household, mm -hmm. of children. And he tried to play on these more feminine sides of them to emphasize their womanhood. And this was also one of the reasons why he allowed actually Tichanovska to run the elections because mm -hmm. he sort of underestimated her that he thought okay she's just a woman like i'm a powerful sure. man larger than life majestic figure so like how should she possibly beat me like who would vote for her even alex says it's important to understand this attitude towards gender roles when looking at autocratic regimes for many authoritarian regimes even ones from very different cultures, as is the case with Egypt and Belarus, gender ideology can become a substitute for an absent political ideology. I think we should start by saying that there are different types of what you may call non-democratic regimes. Mm -hmm. So if you're living in a democracy, it may seem to you that there are only two types of regimes in the world, democracy and uh, dictatorship. But that's not the case because there are totalitarian regimes like German Nazism or, or communism, where you had a ruling party and had an official ideology. So in some cases, it might have been racial supremacism and imperialism, like with Germany or Marxism-Leninism, the building of a utopian society mm -hmm. and the USSR and other places. Uh, so these were very well-structured regimes because they had these ruling parties and ideologies. But then you had other types of non-democratic regimes that political science calls sultanistic. And there it's basically about one person and mm -hmm. the clique of his supporters. But they don't really develop any sophisticated ideology or a real ruling party. You know, mm. no ideology and nothing that people would actually take seriously as a political message. In the absence of a coherent political message, these rulers still need something to mobilize political supporters and to vilify their political opponents with. And this is where these hegemonic masculinities and gender come in. What we argue in the paper is these traditional roles basically substitute for that official ideology which is missing hmm. from those regimes. And in a society that's more or less traditionalist, it actually works because it appeals to many people. You know, the image of a strong leader, you know, kind of a macho, real man. And that is uh, one of the images that is associated with uh, hegemonic or militarized masculinities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that simple image, uh, I would say, can actually have a stronger appeal than any sophisticated, complex ideology. Sure. Uh, plus, you have the regime cultivating these negative feelings like homophobia. They're kind of already there, but it works to ignite them, to strengthen them, because then you can use those feelings to stigmatize your opponents. Hmm. And I think that this appeal of hegemonic masculinity, I mean, it can be strong even in democracies sometimes with populist politicians. 
But Alex and Michaela found that in both Egypt and in Belarus, the protesters pushed back against these representations of gendered ideals. So, for example, Dipiko was this iconization of victimhood, we labeled it. So there were people who were tortured or humiliated by the regimes, and they were meant to be translated into the victims. But in reality, mm-hmm. like the nation, like the people who took part in the protest, turned them into the heroes and visual icons. And they were distributing images visual images of these people and various Mm. graffiti was, for example, made in Egypt and they were distributing it via social networks. So via Facebook, via Twitter, in the case of Belarus, it is also via Telegram channel. So Mm. when I'm talking particularly about Egypt, one of the prominent cases was the girl officially nicknamed as the girl in the blue bra during the Arab Spring in Egypt. Uh, There was a protesting girl at Tahrir Square, which was the focal point of the protest. And she was wearing her abaya, so this loose clothing that some of the women wear. And the military uh, beaten her like really brutally. They were stepping on her belly and they tore her abaya and revealed the blue bra that she was wearing mm. under her abaya. And so this girl became the depiction of this visual injustice. And until nowadays, Her name wasn't revealed, so she's nicknamed as the girl in the blue bra. During the Arab Spring, graffiti created by women, depicting women as heroes of revolution, began popping up all over Cairo. In the case of the girl in the blue bra, not only was the actual photo spreading on social media, but so too were photos of graffiti, either depicting the girl in the blue bra or just her bra itself. So this was like showing the brutality of the regime and of this hegemonic masculinity, how they mistreat Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. But also the visual images of this girl turned her into a powerful figure. So Mm -hmm. there was sort of gender role inversion that from the victim in some of the pictures, she was turned into a survivor and even to an image of a hero who was fighting back. Mm. Like, for example, in one image or graffiti, she was depicted as a superwoman, like really, who is Mm. fighting back against the regime. One of the graffiti artists, her name is Mira Shihadek, she created a very famous image of a woman who is sexually harassed by men. This is a very big problem in Egypt that men sexually harass women and as we also wrote in our article, sometimes like the regime used this to dissuade women protesters from protesting. Mm. And she depicted a woman as a larger than life figure and she's fighting back against these harassers. Mm. She's spraying them with the spray can. So she's like the reversion or inversion of the gender roles because you know like traditionally the woman should be very obedient like she shouldn't fight back but actually she transformed very much this image so she turned it upside down let's say that okay nobody's gonna harass us and also women have right to fight back when something like this is happening to her Alex says some of these images were closely mirrored in Belarus. The overlaps were fascinating because they're also this using of the superwoman image. Mm -hmm. There are these women's protest rallies. And so some of the posters used this superwoman image. And in terms of this inversion, one of the visual symbols that we often came across was 
the inverted Belarusian coat of arms, uh, not the Soviet coat of arms, but the traditional coat of arms that was there before Lukashenko came. And it's a knight, it's mm. called Bahonia, uh, and it's a medieval knight. So the traditional symbol is male, but it was redesigned to actually portray a woman, a female knight on a horse to symbolize this power of women. But also there's there's this uh, iconization of victimhood. So you can imagine this is very decentralized. I mean, since this is grassroots, sure. this is about social networks. So this is about bottom-up creativity. So there's this quite famous painting, which is called the Belarusian Venus, which portrayed a naked woman that was blue from being beaten, uh, lying on the, the white, red, white colors. So that was the kind of visual injustice symbol that was actually a work of art. In Egypt, people were using Facebook and Twitter to circulate these images. In Belarus, it was Telegram, an encrypted app that allows users to see and subscribe to public and private channels. Private channels are like group texts or chats with friends and family, but public channels are more like forums where users can read and post and have discussions publicly. The app claims to have over 700 million monthly active users. There was this massive social media environment in which you had these grassroots horizontal links being formed between people. And that was happening even before the protests and before the election in 2020. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you had these local telegram chats where people from the same apartment building, the same block, the same residential area, uh, they were communicating very actively. And apparently one thing that triggered this was the pandemic because uh, many people before that, they were watching the state TV and that was always controlled by the regime. And then at some point, they started realizing that the TV was lying about the pandemic mm. uh, because it was saying there is no pandemic or it's not dangerous. You know, it's just some kind of a myth. And at the same time, they saw that their friends and relatives were dying in the hospital in critical conditions. So large numbers of people that were hooked up to the state TV, and now they started looking for alternative media channels. And this is how they met uh, on Telegram. Mm. And then you had the next trigger, which was the election and mass brutality, violence and tortures. And you had several oppositional channels with very massive following, and they played a central role in stimulating and coordinating those protests. And the regime tried to stop the protests by making some of the opposition leaders, like Tsikhanovska and others, they tried to make them leave the country. Mm-hmm. So they forced her into exile because they thought that these guys were organizing the protests, but they were mm-hmm. it was the grassroots kind of social media effect. Uh, So that didn't really help. So the protests went on for several months. It's surprising to me that an authoritarian regime, presumably spending a lot of time and efforts on surveillance of its people, got that wrong. Um, Was that very much tied to the social media aspect of this and the fact that Telegram is very encrypted and very hard to ban? It's basically a situation of an authoritarian regime that is, uh, to a significant extent, it's stuck in the 20th century. Hmm. Uh, so it never really appreciated the power of the internet. You mentioned the potential use of the uh, internet by authoritarian regimes, and some authoritarian regimes are very good at that. But the Belarusian authoritarian regime wasn't, because Lukashenko himself didn't use the internet, he didn't believe in the internet, he didn't think it was something important. Mm. You know, when you have the same person in power for decades, well, they tend to get out of touch with reality. Uh, so they're not really capable of believing in, uh, you know, people self-organizing. And it's also an unpleasant thought for these people because they realize that, you know, they're being rejected by somebody, you know, whom they expect to love them, you know, the people. And authoritarian regimes make mistakes, you know, ignoring the pandemic was, was a fatal mistake. 
Belarus shut down the internet for part of the protest or attempted to. Uh, I know a lot in Arab Spring, I know there were somewhat similar attempts, although maybe less successful. So what effect did this have on the protests? And how are these countries trying to suppress these methods of communication today? Well, they did try to shut down the internet in 2020 for a couple of days. Even though Telegram was still working, I mean, this is when they discovered that you can't sure. really block it. But then they probably realized that, that this this is way too costly, right? Because when you mm-hmm. shut down the internet, it just paralyzes everything. And you know, in, in a country with a more or less modern economy, there are too many things that are dependent on modern communications. You can you, you cannot afford that long term. So they uh, they unblocked the internet after a couple of days. We have a conflict here between decentralized internet and centralized authoritarian regime that cannot survive without the internet. Predictably, the regime started policing the social networks and trying to find the admins of the channels resistors were using to coordinate. The regime also flexed its authority against anyone who was active online. Uh, so they would knock on your door, and they would search your laptop or your phone, and you know if you didn't give them the password, they would torture you, threaten you, and then... They started outlawing the media, but also the uh, there dozens of Telegram channels and even personal pages that were outlawed. You know, they're labeled extremists. And, you know, these are things that are perfectly fine before 2020, like, for instance, Radio Free Europe. But now it's labeled extremists in Belarus by the regime. So if you're subscribed to them, you are also in danger. You will face repression. And people have been sent to prison, you know, just for giving an interview to some of these media or even for smaller things like giving a like on Facebook or being subscribed to the Telegram channel. Sure, sure, sure. We are seeing the struggle between a 20th century authoritarian regime and a 21st century technologies, and it's a very tough, tough battle. Many authoritarian regimes are basically built on keeping the people passive, right? So stay out of politics, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, moments like this, like 2020 in, in Belarus, you are surprised by... Uh, the potential of people for self-organizing, you know, you would never suspect it, right? And you see that they have great potential for learning, for being brave, for being altruistic, for standing in solidarity. Sure. And these are miraculous moments, but this is something that this type of regimes really hates, right? Because it, it undermines its political monopoly sure. and power. And, you know, this is the environment that is created by the social media. And that is what makes them a potential game changer. Still, while some authoritarian regimes are stuck back in the 20th century, others have been working diligently to keep up with current technology. Nowadays, this role of digital authoritarianism is very Mm. prominent. So actually now we are in the situation where both parties basically are using the power of social media. So it's not only about protesters, as we're talking both in Egypt, in Belarus, in other countries, who are using social media to their benefits, to organize, to share their message and to show the outer world what's going on in their country. But it's also about specifically these authoritarian regimes that are using various tools of social media to get rid of protesters, to pursue them. So, for example, in Egypt... Now the government is using this online dating app for homosexuals to attract somebody who is prospectively Mm. gay, to ask him to come to a date, and then they will imprison him. So it's becoming the social media and also these dating apps, to give just one of the examples, are becoming very powerful tools in the hands of these Mm. authoritarians to get rid of some groups of people. 
in Iran now during the late or the current protest also. There was this prominent use of digital authoritarianism. Like nowadays, they're even using some technology imported from China for facial recognition of women who decide to Mm -hmm. trespass Mm -hmm. this rule of wearing hijab or the headscarf in the street. So not believing in the internet feels like a pretty huge blind spot and kind of leaves a huge vulnerability to be exploited by activists and grassroots movements. Yeah, and even though Lukashenko's still in power today, right, that speaks to kind of the strength of authoritarian regimes, absolutely, like, what a silly thing to not believe in and giving your opponents a tool that they can use against you. But... That's obviously changing these days. It's not like a lot of these authoritarian regimes are living in the dark ages anymore. Yeah. Both governments and protesters are becoming increasingly internet savvy and understanding that these battles that they're fighting also take place online. And in a big way, right? Like, Social media is a very powerful force for motivating both internal change, internal support, external change, external support in terms of the international stage, right? Like the wars are still fought on the streets, but absolutely on the internet stage as well. And I feel like we're seeing a real cat and mouse game here, especially with what's going on in Iran, with the woman life freedom movement. And I wanted to find out a little bit more about how this game is playing out. So I reached out to Perry Chair Kazemi, a PhD candidate at the University of Oregon, whose research is looking at women's resistance movements across the Middle East, specifically focusing on the role of images and how they are important parts of these movements. My home discipline is political science. So political scientists have been talking a lot about social media in terms of how it influences elections, for example, or how it influences people to vote or misinformation. But there was this whole other side of social media where it wasn't just like people organizing movements in the Middle East, but it was actually specifically women taking social media images and making that a very political form of expression. Hmm. And that's not really something that the literature had yet accounted for. So that was kind of like one side of it that was really interesting to me. But then on the other side of it, social media platforms for the last several years have become very visual. We had YouTube, Instagram was, you know, popping, you had Snapchat, and then a little bit later, you got TikTok. But people were still really talking about social media kind of in this broad sense that they were these platforms that people were using to communicate and organize movements. Well, what happens in the Middle East where people don't always have that kind of access to social media to organize a movement because they can't always necessarily gather in public spaces, right? Mm. So that was kind of another angle of it that was really interesting to me. It was so we're going this visual direction and people are using visuals in this really unique way. So how do we make sense of that? Perry Chair has noticed a sort of pattern with social media protests and movements where each builds upon the ones that came before. She began by telling me about a series of protests against compulsory hijabs in 2018 called Girls of Revolution Street. A movement before that is My Stealthy Freedom, which is the focus of my research. And that one started in around 2014. There is this exiled Iranian journalist that lived in London, and she has her personal Facebook page. And one day she posts on her Facebook page this picture of herself running unveiled in this London street. And you, like her hair is really curly, so her curls are kind of like all in the air, and she looks really happy. And she posts this picture of herself on Facebook, right? Well, then she gets all these comments from different people, especially women in Iran, being like, oh, you know, I'm so envious of you. I don't know why we don't have these freedoms in Iran. You know, take advantage of these freedoms that you have. Wish we had them too. 
Well, then she kind of starts to respond to these comments saying, you know, when I was in Iran, I remember we used to go out really stealthily unveiled in places that people normally wouldn't see us, right? Mm. And that was like, for me, a way of regaining freedom. She was like, I mm. bet you've done the same thing too, and you should send me a picture of it. So then you see these women start like flooding her page with pictures of themselves unveiled in these public spaces. And she ends up like organizing all these pictures on a separate Facebook page called My Selfie Freedom. So from there, you start kind of getting this very online visual-based movement where women at first playfully send her these pictures of themselves unveiled. Over time, the movement began to grow. Within the first week, the page had 100,000 likes. It starts growing so much that it starts, you know, getting attention from the Iranian government. So you sure. start getting certain protesters getting called in, getting questioned, at times getting arrested. So over time, you have this movement that kind of responds to the state in the sense that images start to kind of become stealthy, but not only in the sense that they're going out into like places that people normally wouldn't visit, but they're mm -hmm. also starting to take pictures of themselves, like hiding their facial features, maybe putting sunglasses on, having their backs to the camera, things like that, basically to kind of bypass these surveillance tactics of the state. Gradually, women began to receive backlash from more conservative sections of society. As this movement becomes more and more popular, you start getting people telling women in the streets, like, you know, that they should put their veil on or whatever, and women start recording these interactions. So in the My Selfie Freedom movement, you start getting these separate campaigns or these separate branches within this umbrella movement called My Selfie Freedom, which basically becomes campaigns of women recording these interactions of like men telling them that they need to veil or recording interactions with them in the morality police. So then you don't just end up getting My Selfie Freedom, you get My Camera is My Weapon, which is the name of that particular campaign. You get White Wednesdays, which is another campaign that kind of formed really organically of women wearing white on Wednesdays in protest of compulsory hijab laws. You get women biking over time. You get women dancing, singing. These are all things that are legally prohibited under the Islamic Republic for women. And women start taking pictures of themselves doing those things as well. You start getting pictures of men wearing the veil, kind of like in the silly protest tactics supporting women as well. So images kind of start growing around these things that people want to draw attention to. And that's what became I Sell the Freedom. Perry Chair says that it is no coincidence visual expressions and images became such a powerful tool in a place like Iran. Protest tactics actually evolve around our environments. Our environment is what determines the kind of protest tactics that we ended up taking on. So images were birthed because of a very repressive environment under the Islamic Republic that didn't really give women other opportunities to express dissent. Mm. So prior to that, you had women's movements, you had instances of women's mobilization under the Islamic Republic, but they didn't look like this because there were other opportunities available to them, right? Sure. But then after 2009 is generally like the point along the timeline that scholars give for this new face of the Islamic Republic, a much more repressive, a much more dictatorial regime. So post-2009, you don't see those same women's movements that existed pre-2009 continuing and kind of mm -hmm, gaining mm -hmm. strength or anything like that. So it kind of forced women to have to take on different avenues in order to express their dissent. Sure. And this just happened to be a tool that was available to them and became politicized in the process. The 2009 presidential election in Iran began a protest movement that is known as the Green Revolution or the Twitter Revolution due to the protesters' reliance on Twitter to organize and to show the rest of the world what was happening. It was a high turnout election, yet incumbent president Mahmoud Ahmadinejad declared victory only two hours after the polls closed. The protests lasted from June 2009 through December 2010. 
Ahmadinejad managed to hold on to power and quell the demonstrations, but had to crack down severely on people's freedoms, including their internet access, to prevent further uprisings. Since then, as Perry Chair said, there have been numerous protest movements on social media, with the most recent one, the Women Life Freedom Movement, erupting just last fall. So around mid-September, social media gets word that there's been a young girl, 22 years old, that was on vacation from her hometown in the Kurdish area of Iran. She's on vacation in Tehran, the capital of Iran, gets arrested by the morality police and is in a coma. So something happens between the time that she gets detained by the morality police for showing too much hair. She was wearing the hijab, which is something that all women are required to do in Iran when they go out in public, but she wasn't doing it properly. And somehow, whatever happened between the moment that she was detained. And the moment she ended up in the hospital, something caused her to go into a coma. And then a couple of days later, she ends up dying. But unfortunately for Iranians, this was all too common. And in a way, it kind of ended up being so common that it was the source of a lot of frustration for a lot sure. of Iranians. And that's what ended up taking people into the streets to express that frustration. Many people already resented the morality police due to similar incidents in the past. But Masa Amini's death was the spark that ignited a powder keg of frustration, resulting in the latest protest movement, Woman Life Freedom. Soon after her death, you start seeing women cutting their hair as a symbolic act of protest at her funeral. And from there, the videos of that circulate on social media. You start seeing people taking into the streets. It all happened really quickly. I mean, I mm -hmm. remember those mm -hmm. first days of the movement. I was like glued to Twitter. And it's not even a platform that I even use that often. But just seeing all these images constantly, constantly, constantly coming out. And you see women cutting their hair. You see girls in the streets without their veils. You see them burning their hijabs. You see them dancing in circles. And the thing for me that was the most interesting variable to come out of these images was that men were along with women in these mm. protests too. So it wasn't just this collective protest of women in the streets, but it was also men in the streets with them. To Perry Chair, the way this movement is building upon previous protests is very evident. We were seeing these images that were so powerful mm -hmm. of women standing like unveiled like this isn't something that we've seen under the islamic republic so over time it's not just images of women running from you know um, security forces in the streets or like being unveiled in the streets but you start seeing these images of women graffitiing a wall with some kind of like anti-regime slogan and being unveiled or you mm. start seeing images of women going into azadi square which is a really famous part in tehran and being unveiled there so for me that was really interesting because it was very very reminiscent of my Saudi freedom. It was kind of those same kind of staging of images that was really core to my Saudi freedom sure. were being used again in this movement. So in a sense, they were speaking directly to that prior history and building off it, which was really cool to me. The protest has also garnered and benefited a great deal from international support. Much of this support has been from reposting content from Iranians on social media or TikTok videos teaching Westerners how to lend their internet service to Iranians during periodic state internet shutdowns. These and other actions have helped bolster the Iranian resistors. Iranians generally feel like they don't have defense mechanisms against the regime. I mean, mm. up until now, just within this latest movement, official numbers of people being killed are 600 people. And of arrests, it's almost 20,000 mm. people going out and protesting can get you killed. Sure. So this is a population that feels really pressured. They don't feel like they have a lot of other ways to express mm -hmm. themselves. They don't mm -hmm. have a lot of other forms of defending themselves against the regime. So images have become a way for people to continue showing the world what's happening in Iran. Still, the state is pushing back, 
and in some cases using the very same tools as the protesters. You see the Iranian government constantly trying to use those same tools in its own favor. So they definitely use a lot of visuals to remind women of, you know, the virtues of morality laws and the virtues of veiling. Even throughout public spaces, they definitely demoralize women that are unveiled. They typically tend to equate them to like spies of the West and stuff like that, or like um, extensions of Western governments basically being paid to go out into the streets and be naked, which is what they always say that women that are unveiled are like going out naked. The fact that My Stealthy Freedom is organized by that exiled journalist who's in the West, so it just feeds into their hand, right? Like given that the face of the movement is a woman that lives in the West. Given that social media is being used by both the state as well as protesters, I wanted to ask Perry Chair whether she considers social media to be mostly a force for good, a tool that generally benefits state control, or a mix of both. I I think I continue to struggle with it. For the first three years of my research, and for me being Iranian and for me being so passionate about the movement and following it and being like, this is amazing. You know, women are using these images in really cool ways. It's never been done before. It's this and this. Being so excited about it and being like, social media is amazing. And then on the other hand, Iranian forces using social media to identify women. You know, in one case, there was a video of a Iranian woman in a Tehran metro. And she was, you know, very open. She was showing her face. And what what was she doing? She was handing out flowers in the Tehran metro on International Women's Day. Arrested 16 years in prison Mm. for that. So Iranian government uses the same tools that Iranian women use to, like, liberate themselves from the regime Mm -hmm. to track Mm -hmm. them down and to arrest them. Where I've gotten to now is that we kind of get bogged down and we really limit ourselves when we try to think about social media as this good or bad thing. It just is. It's going to get embedded within our lifestyles and we'll figure out a way to use it as an extension of ourselves. But that doesn't mean that regimes won't do it in the same sense, right? They also will use it as an extension of themselves. But instead of just thinking about it as this like good or bad thing, let's move past that and look at how people are using it. Let's look at how governments are using it and just kind of talk about what it is. That is it for this episode. Thank you to all of the academics we spoke to this week, Alex Kazarski, Michaela Granchayova, and Perry Chair Kazemi. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and the conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was produced and written by Katie Flood. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Sarl. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media, and Soraya Nandy does our transcripts. Mend Marwani is the show's executive producer, and I am Dan Marino. I'm Nihal Al-Hadi. Thanks for listening. <laughs>